So it's Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded about me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Great. Thank you, Susie. How's everyone doing? Good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. For those who don't know me, my name is Peter. I'm one of the one of the other pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffin Baptist Church. Um, we are going to be in Jonah 2, in the belly of the fish this morning, so please keep those Bibles open. Um, we need God's help to hear his word clearly, so I just want to ask, can we pray one more time um, and ask the Lord's blessing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for these, your words you've given us. Um, we're thankful that your word is living and active um, and that you really do speak to us from it. Um, we ask that we would have... Um, listening ears and open eyes to what you have for us individually and also as a church. Um, please guide us into truth and uh, call us back to you in whatever way that is this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I think there's a certain type of person in every single family. Now, it's the person I'm talking about is the person you just can't sort of outmaneuver. The person you just can't get anything past them. Do you have someone like that in your family? The person who has eyes in the back of their head? Um, the person who has a sixth sense for like the smallest sound of a packet of crisps opening? Do you know what I'm talking about? In our family, it's Emily. Um, and I'm a big fan of what you might call a fourth meal. Um, perhaps you know what I'm talking about and you love it too. We normally eat dinner around about 6.30 in the evening, and oftentimes I have meetings or something I need to go do in the evening, so I'll come back home between like 9 and 11. And I'm almost always in the mood for a snack. And that's when you know it's time for a fourth meal. And I almost always go to the dinner leftovers Emily has kind of carefully packed away for tomorrow's lunch. And it very, very, very rarely goes well for me. Um, without fail, she catches me in the act almost every single time, and yet each time I try and sort of outmaneuver her, even though I know she'll find out whatever in tomorrow's lunch. But for some reason, you just keep trying, don't you? Has anyone ever been there? Maybe. Just keep trying. And this literally happened to me last week with some lasagnas in the fridge, and somehow she could hear the Tupperware lid opening from a completely different room. 
it's like she, even if she doesn't catch me in the act the next day, she'll just know like the balance of the force is off. She'll know and look in the fridge. And I was literally thinking about how that relates to what we've been talking about with Jonah this past week. Last week, we, we uh, were introduced to this prophet named Jonah who refused to listen to what God wanted for him, even though that was the best thing for him. And so he tried to sort of outmaneuver, wiggle away from what God was calling him to do, which is actually quite a comical thing to do, right? To try and run away from God. We see just how ridiculous it was last week when Jonah's sort of on the boat sailing away and the storm comes and the sailors ask, who are you? And he says, well, I'm a prophet of God. And so, okay, well, which God are you a prophet for? And he says, oh, you know, the one that made the land and the sea, the one that I'm on a sea trying to get away from. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But Jonah is so against God's call on his life to preach to this wicked nation of Nineveh that he tries to sort of wiggle free from God. It makes no sense. Run from the God who made the seas by getting on a boat. It, that should go well, Jonah, sure, sure. In one sense, it's foolish, but in another sense, that's also entirely believable, though, isn't it? I mean, we do that all the time. I'm so content to deny what I know because of what I want. I know eating a fourth meal is not good for me right before I go to bed, and I know Emily will find out, but I do it anyways. We do this with a relationship with God, just like Jonah as well. We're wary of letting God cost into out of our comfort zones. We're comfortable giving God sort of our Sunday mornings, but less comfortable with our relationships or our finances or even our conversations. Why? Well, it's simple. We, we want to be the captain of our own ships. We want to be in control. We want to pursue our idea of the good life. And as we saw last week, following this God might in fact ruin our idea of the good life. But that's only because he wants to show us what true abundant life looks like. A life brimming over with security and love, and that spills out into the lives of people around us, a sort of a fountain of his grace and his mercy. So today, we're going to see how God chases after this delusional prophet who's set in his own way and mercifully pulls him back through a storm and a giant fish. Jonah's life will be ruined, but it will be saved. And this morning, we're sort of kind of swimming upstream together as we read this book, Jonah, because we suffer from a sort of children's storybook familiarity with it. And each time we come to God's words and we're overly familiar with it, we're always sort of in danger of not actually being able to listen to it, what God could be saying directly to us. And even more so with a bizarre story like this. So as we begin, I want to ask that you would keep your eyes and ears open to what Jonah's actually talking about to us. As a book, Jonah's actually an extremely sophisticated and adult book. To hear how profound it is for us this morning, we have to listen very carefully. So let's jump in at verse 17 in chapter 1. Let's just read verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah where he'll live for three days and three nights before being vomited back onto the land. Now, you're probably thinking, Peter, you just asked me to have fresh eyes and fresh ears to what's going on. But did this really happen? How would Jonah even get air? Did he really go in the belly of the fish? How is this possible? Did he write a poem while he was in the belly? 
And you're right, those are, that's, it's bizarre, and those are really valid questions. So in order to kind of see it with fresh eyes, let me first reiterate what sort of James mentioned last week, and then give us a way of understanding what's actually going on in the fish. So first, last week we said that the book of Jonah is often understood by Orthodox, Bible-believing, creed-confessing Christians in sort of two different ways. Many theologians and scholars we would stand shoulder to shoulder with to affirm Jesus and the core Christian beliefs have differing opinions on what, how we're supposed to take this writing of Jonah. Now, some believe that the book of Jonah is a historical narrative account. That means that everything said in this book was really experienced by Jonah firsthand. Everything was a real encounter. Jonah was physically swallowed by the fish and wrote the poem in the belly. Others believe that the book is sort of an Old Testament parable. That means that the author of the book used a real historical person, Jonah, son of Amittai, in a sort of a poetic, parabolic story that's meant to challenge us as readers. We even see Jesus in the New Testament using parables, using real people, and then injecting them into a story in order to challenge our, our assumptions and our understandings. Some scholars think that Jonah is something like that. Now, as we've mentioned, both options are held by Bible-believing, God's Word is inspired, creed-confessing Christians. So if you're interested in that, please come speak to either myself or James, and we can give you some resources. However, however, it is important to know that both of those viewpoints agree that God is able to do things that we think are impossible. Whether or not Jonah really wrote the poem in the belly of the fish, of an actual fish, our faith is founded upon a God who comes down, becomes a human, lives, dies, raised to new life, and then he indwells us by his spirit. That's crazy. He is certainly able to appoint a fish to swallow Jonah. Christianity necessitates an embrace of the supernatural, that a God who intervenes in this world in supernatural ways. So the fish is, a, in a sense, a tiny part of the story, but is an extremely potent, and it's a visceral image, isn't it? It just sticks in our minds, this giant fish. You can't hear the word Jonah and not think of the whale or the fish. So in order for us to understand, though, what is actually going on, we must see Jonah in the context. In order to do that, we need to know that Jonah is a prophet, which was an incredibly important role for God's people. They acted as a mouthpiece and a messenger for God to his people when his people were in danger of forsaking the covenant relationship and there was judgment looming on the horizon. Now, this part of the Bible that we're in this morning, there's lots of other prophets' messages. If you turn a few pages back or a few pages forward, you'll find many of them, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, and it goes on. But all of their messages have followed an incredibly similar pattern, or even you could call it a formula. And it goes like this. They basically all say to Israel, you need to look at what you're doing, Israel. You're abandoning God and his purpose for you. You're trusting idols. Therefore, you need to turn and repent and come back to God. Otherwise, these big bad empires, Assyria and Babylon, will come capture the city and take God's people into exile, which we know historically actually happens. However, these prophets always look forward to a time after the exile in Babylon or Assyria when God will preserve this remnant. He would bring them out the other side of exile because God's commitment to his people was always more powerful than their own sin and rebellion. God will bring his people out of the other side of Babylon and Assyria. This was the central message of the prophets. 
And these prophets would oftentimes develop different images and symbols and metaphors, and they would share and borrow them between each other. So I want to show you a couple to see if you can see any similarities with Jonah. So the first prophet we read from is Hosea, one of the earliest prophets, uh, prophesying about the impending doom of Assyria. And this is what Hosea says. He says, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Israel is swallowed up. A second prophet from Jeremiah, who's prophesying about the impending doom of the Babylonians, and their king Nebuchadnezzar says this, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has set me aside like an empty dish. He has swallowed me like a sea monster. He filled his belly with my delicacies. He has vomited me out. Even in uh, God's, God's people's songbook, the Psalms, we read this from Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when the people attack us, then they would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. Then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. You see what's going on? Jonah is a prophet who is living the message of the prophets. Israel abandons God's purpose for idols. So these empires come and capture God's people, which is like being swallowed by a sea monster. But God will not give up on his people. He will bring them out the other side. And Jonah is living this experience. He abandons God's purpose and call for him for his own idols. So a storm comes and he is literally swallowed alive by a sea monster and eventually will be brought out the other side. So this whole section in the belly of a fish is like a sort of a glowing blue hyperlink to all the other places where this imagery is used and explained. And it's not simply supposed to be a sort of a closed story about a man who got swallowed by a fish a long, long time ago. It's also meant to be about us. When we stop, we can slowly realize how this pattern emerges in our own life. Wanting to be the captain of our own ships, ignoring God and even running from him. Finding ourselves at one point sailing on the open seas and the next moment plunged into the depths. This is not a weird, isolated event. Joe's poem is a sort of a mirror into which reflects our own experiences of being thrown overboard and swallowed alive. We often say that we feel swallowed alive by our work or our stress. We feel constrained by situations or illness, surrounded by our own failings, engulfed by loneliness. Look look at how Jonah describes being swallowed alive. Let's read from verse 3 together. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods, floods surrounded me. All your waves and your bills, they passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet again, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is plunged down. The floods surround him. Waters closed in over him. The deep surrounds him. He goes all the way down to the roots of the mountains in a sort of watery prison where the bars are closed forever, down to the pit, buried alive, constricted. 
I know those of you who are a bit maybe claustrophobic might feel a bit squeamish, that thought of being sort of tightly compacted and sort of buried down alive. I get very sort of squeamish thinking about that. And I remember the first time I felt claustrophobic um, when I was watching, for the first time, uh, Willy Wonka. Um, maybe you, I'm sure many of you have seen the film, and the dear, dear Augustus Gloop um, is drinking from the Chocolate River, right? And what happens? He falls in, and then what happens? He gets sucked up this pipe, and he gets stuck in the pipe, and it just made me squirm. Just being in that place of constrictedness, being out of control, not able to do anything. And Jonah is experiencing this, but in the lowest, deepest, darkest depths where there's loneliness and there's no one around him. Today, we sit in relative comfort above ground, don't we? The sun is shining. But I know there's some of you here today who feel like you've been swallowed alive, who can empathize with Jonah. You feel surrounded, constrained, alone in those dark places. And the rest of us know that feeling of being in crisis. So this poem is an invitation to see Jonah pray through his hardship and suffering. And so what I want to ask is that you lay this poem against your life and ask this question, what might God be doing and showing us in the belly of the fish? What might God be doing and showing us in the belly of the fish? Well, first, I think that God is showing that he is not absent but present. Let's read verses 1 to 3 one more time. From verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So in the fish, Jonah calls out to the Lord. Perhaps you may have been in a situation where you've actually had to physically cry out for help. Um, personally, I think of a time, ironically, when I, I uh, thought I was going to drown. It was at a wave pool near my home, and I sort of slipped right through the inner tube, and I was sort of out of sync with the wave. So every time I would go up for air, another wave would come crashing down. Maybe you have a similar experience. And I actually had to cry out for help. Maybe you've been there before. You feel like you've lost control. Maybe you haven't audibly cried out for help, but you feel like you're crying out for help, maybe due to physical danger or emotional or relational, or even spiritual danger. And moments like this actually strip away any sense that we have of control, that we've got things in order, that we can manage our life fine, that we are the captain of our own ships. And so what do we do? We cry out for help. And surprisingly, in jo- for Jonah, he says in verse 1, the Lord answered him. In his distress, God hears Jonah's voice. Even after he's run, he hears his voice. Even in the darkest most isolated, chaotic moments, God is near to us. He's present. Now, interestingly, our default assumption in those moments is actually the complete opposite. When my life is falling apart and I feel swallowed alive, therefore, God must not care. He must not hear me. And maybe he isn't even there. When we see disaster, we naturally assume God is absent. But Jonah cries out and experiences the exact opposite. That God hears, he's listening, and he answers. Some of you will know Jonah's experience perfectly. You get thrown overboard, and it feels like utter abandonment. And then suddenly, when you come to the end of yourself, you find that God is there with you. It's not as if God is only in the belly of the fish. God's always present and listening. But rather, when we're stripped away of our control and our idols of power, our sensitivity to his presence is suddenly heightened. 
all of a sudden, in the pain and confusion, God's presence becomes almost palpable to us. God never leaves his people. C.S. Lewis, the writer, has famously said this, which you may have heard, that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But Jonah takes the logic even further. Look at, what he, look at who he says cast him into the sea in verse 3. Who does he say? You cast me into the sea, right? Who's the you they're referring to? It's referring to God, isn't it? But in chapter 1, who are we told throws him overboard? The sailors. And then look whose waves and billows pass over Jonah in verse 3. It's your waves and your bills. It's God's waves that close in over him. What's going on? Well, Jonah can suddenly see God's hand in all of it. God didn't just show up in the belly. He's been there all along. Jonah can see that God has been present and working amidst all the circumstances and decisions he's made to bring him to this place of dependence and trust. Now, I know some of you might be asking, does that mean that God is responsible for my suffering and the confusion that I'm going through? Well, well, for Jonah, is God responsible for Jonah's refusing to go to Nineveh and running away? No. Is God responsible for Jonah's poor moral decisions? No, no, absolutely not. That's silly. Jonah is in a mess of his own making. And he finds himself thrown overboard by the sailors and God appoints a fish to swallow him. You see, sometimes we end up in the belly as a result of our own decisions. Some of us might be here today and we've made those poor decisions like Jonah. We find ourselves in really hard places. But there are also some of us here today who find ourselves in the belly of the fish because of someone else's poor decisions or messes that have sort of spilled over into our lives. We think of the story of Joseph, who was also thrown down into a pit and sold into slavery, not because of anything he did, because of his brothers and their sin. Sometimes we find ourselves in the depths because of other people. And finally, there might be some of us here today who find ourselves in the belly of the fish because there's no reasonable cause that we can conceive of. Illness and tragedy strike, and we're like Job, clueless to the confusing pain. Whichever situation rings true to you, and whoever sin or decision it is that gets Jonah in the belly, we do know, however, that God is not biting his nails or worried. He's not surprised. God is not to blame for our evil circumstances, nor is he responsible for our sins or the sins of others around us. But he is present, and he will for sure work in spite of those circumstances. In this situation, Jonah realizes God might be showing him what author Sheldon Von Onken says calls a severe mercy, a severe mercy. Some of you might be a bit ticked off right now as you're thinking of God allowing these belly experiences and working in spite of them, dealing a sort of severe mercy. And it's hard not to be, but with Jonah, how we respond to these belly moments reveals what kind of God we, who we think God is. Now, most of us have the default assumption that we invited God into our lives, sort of give us smooth passage to a destination of our choosing. With a little bit of comfort and enjoyment along the way, safe, comfortable, happy, and then that's God's priority, to give me my dream cruise across the Mediterranean. That's who God is. But in the belly, we're reminded that God's highest priority is actually to call a people to himself to form us So we understand that we are his creatures formed in his image and we actually make really bad captains of our own ships. God's mercy helps us discover the truth of how selfish I am 
how twisted I am and how I've taken my life for granted, how I hurt people, how I'm a bad captain of my own ship. And it brings us to this place of humble dependence where we can be shaped and formed to look like his son, Jesus. And those of you who have been there know that that is a profound place to be in. We may get thrown overboard. God may deal a severe mercy. I don't know where all of you are today. I cannot authoritatively discern what circumstance you are in or how to discern what's going on for you personally. But God's word is authoritative, and perhaps, perhaps, you might need to take a moment for the first time to stop and consider how God might be coming to you in mercy. If there's a storm brewing in your life or you've been thrown overboard, cry out. God is not absent. He's mercifully present in those moments, and he listens to every groan, whether audible or inaudible. His will is to bring you out the other side formed. So whatever circumstance you might be facing, please hear this. Nothing is outside of God's redemptive reach. Let me say one more time. Nothing is outside of God's redemptive reach. (laughs) Nothing is outside of God's redemptive reach. Nothing is. Sometimes what we need most is for someone to speak the word, God, into a place where it has never been spoken before, where we haven't recognized his presence. The second thing Jonah learns in the belly is that the abundant life does not come from idols, but from love. Let's read verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So Jonah brings up idols in this poem, which seems a bit odd at first, doesn't it? But if you think about it, what got him into this mess? His own sense of authority, his own sense of pleasure and control. He's following after his own idols of self-serving attitudes, comfort, and power. And he says that those who follow in his footsteps, who pay regard to idols, as he calls it, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. Or as one translation puts it, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their first love. Jonah thought that by running away from God's call in his life, he was getting everything he wanted, freedom, independence, control, and pleasure. He was on, there was the horizon of the Mediterranean in front of him, and I'm sure in that first day with the wind in his hair, he was thought, I'm getting what I want. He had thought he had outmaneuvered God. The names are just the same. We find our hope, our security, in our finances, in our families, in our homes. We find our meaning and value in life, in our relationships, in our careers. And quickly, those things become, they start to provide salvation for us. So we fill our hands with all these idols, and life seems manageable, doesn't it? And God's love seems to be a nice little add-on we can add to the pile of the idols, We're fine cruising along the Mediterranean. Life is okay. We don't really need God that much. Our hands are full. This is rampant in our part of the world, in sort of well-to-do Suffolk. God becomes just another add-on, something else to sort of add to the pile. We can manage our lives fine, thank you. We don't ask for help around here. We're self-sufficient. Our lives are sorted. This is why many people like the idea of Jesus but the gospel never sinks in because they don't feel like they need him. Life is good for them at the moment in order with nice, clean, neat idols. 
And however much you speak about Jesus, they never seem to respond. So sometimes, God is calling us to be his presence there for them when their ship goes down. Because once Jonah was thrown overboard, none of his idols could save him. These moments when we come to the end of ourselves are moments where moments that we see the boundary line of our life have the ability to sort of strip back all the clutter of life and show us just how weak and powerless we are and how vulnerable we are. Anytime we place our hope, our meaning, our va- or values, or security into something other than God or someone other than God, we place our trust in things that are very easily toppled or destroyed. And more importantly, most importantly, we give up the best thing we have going for us, that we belong to and we are loved by God with unending steadfast love and compassion who will not forsake us ever. By running from God with his hands filled with his idols, Jonah, ironically, was giving up the only real thing he had going for him. And it's in the belly that Jonah realized that cherishing these idols means forsaking the truest, deepest thing, God's steadfast love. And so stripped of the clutter, aware of what really matters, Jonah is able to finally let go of these worthless idols and grab hold of God's love. Jonah realizes, all I have, all I have, is that God is committed to redeeming my life from something I can't see any way out of. And suddenly, a house that's built on the sand is built with an unshakable foundation. He is held by God himself, no longer propped up by vulnerable idols. Idols cannot save Jonah. He says, the Lord is my salvation. As some of you have been here before, you know it's a place of unshakable confidence and almost invincibility, even in spite of the awful circumstance you are in. And you think, man, I'm in the belly here, but I know that God is for me, and he will not let anything separate me from his love. I'm held by him alone. My hope is in his steadfast, unending love and mercy. We cannot experience that love and trust with idols in our hands offering us the exact same salvation. Jesus himself says you cannot serve two masters, whether it be money or fame or social standing or respect or relationships. You cannot serve two masters. And so he wants to rip these worthless idols out of our hands, not because he is mean, but because he wants us to experience is always enough, never-ending, steadfast, trustworthy, and unfailing love. Uh, A a few months ago in an evening service, Brian, uh, ministry trainee here at BRBC, mentioned a very helpful image of this truth by sort of explaining how to trap raccoons, of all things. Um, Apparently, if you want to catch a raccoon, um, you hollow out a log, or you find a hollow log, and you drill a very sort of small hole in one side, And inside the log, you put some aluminum foil or aluminum foil and some or a wrapper inside the log. When the the raccoon comes by, he'll stick his hand through the little hole and grab onto whatever is in the log. But when he goes to pull his hand out of the log, he can't fit his fist through the hole. And so predators and trappers can come and uh, trap this raccoon, even though even though the only thing that's keeping him trapped is he just won't let go of whatever shiny thing he's got. If he just let go, he'd be free. And Jonah seems to be saying the exact same thing. If you'd only let go, you could be set free to grab onto the love of God. Let go. As you mentioned last week, letting go of our idols might feel like our life is ruined. 
but only then will we find true, deep, everlasting, eternal life. It's as if Jonah knew that Jesus would say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? So the question is simple. What do you need to put down so you can save your life and lean into the steadfast love of God? Where do you find the most security and comfort from? If it's someone or something other than God, you are forfeiting your steadfast, unshakable hope of love from God himself. Don't abandon the best, most trustworthy, most impenetrable hope that you have, please. And if you're in the belly and your idols are sinking with you, don't forget that we have a God who's committed to redeeming our life out of something we have no idea of how we're going to get out of. God is committed to redeeming our life from the pit. Not idols, but love. Lastly, and we will end with this. In the belly, Jonah moves from a position not, of, not to fear, but of trust. So let's read verse 7 one more time. Verse 7 says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now twice in Jonah's prayerful poem, he mentions God's temple, which again seems like an odd thing to think about in the belly of a fish. That's, I guess, just what you do when you're in the belly of a fish. Think of God's temple. But that's because in Jonah's time, the temple was a sort of a hot spot of God's presence, where sacrifices were made and where reconciliation was accomplished. And in verse 9, Jonah anticipates the day when he'll once again be able to sacrifice in God's temple. In the, be- in the belly, Jonah looks to the temple, the hot spot of God's presence. There's this building which communicates that God is near to us and wants to come close. Why? Why does he, why does he think of the temple? Because it's the fundamental question for all of us in those moments. Does God care? How is God towards me in this awful experience? For Jonah, he looks to the temple. And we do the same thing. As Christians, we look to the one person who is the very presence of God himself in those moments. We look to Jesus, the very image and radiance of God And as we look to Jesus, we do not see God that is far off, who is distant, or deals with us from afar, but a God who is for us and draws near to us. In the belly, when all our bearings are sort of off-kelter, and we're tempted to fall into fear or doubt, we feel constricted and surrounded, there's one place we go, and that's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who was not spared of being in the belly for three days either who experienced the depth that no other human has experienced. Why? Because he loves us and wants to redeem us from the pit. How do we know how God is to us in those moments in the belly? Like Jonah, we look to the hot spot of God's presence. We look to Jesus. And when that happens, we are put into a basic position of trust and rest. Notice how Jonah ends the poem. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our idols can't save us. We can't save ourselves, and we can never free ourselves from the mess that we're in. And if the story ends there, that's terrifying. That ends in fear and worry and doubt. But in the belly, when we come to the end of ourselves, we are invited to know with certainty that salvation belongs to the Lord. Nothing relies on our ability, 
but all rests on God's unending, unshakable, steadfast, unbreakable love. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus.